Thanks, guys. Hi, guys, back there. Hi. It's nice to have visitors. Hi. Nice visitors. So awesome. Okay. It's 1992, and I'm in grade seven. Okay? Everybody's doing quick math to figure out how old I am. No. So it's 1992. I'm in grade seven. Mrs. Varney is my teacher. And I am at Scott Lee Junior High. And um, in my picture that I took, because we did like, you know, like kindergarten students, we did like a, this is me at the beginning of the year. This is me at the end of the year. In my beginning of the year picture, I was wearing prophetic clothes. Yes. This is spooky cool. Um, so there was this place, uh, this like company in my city, St. Catharines, Ontario. There was this company that was like a uh, clothing making company and it, uh, it was all the rage in the 90s, the early 90s. And um, and everybody would wear, essentially, they looked like men's boxing, boxer shorts, like men's underwear. But like everybody, all the girls, wore these like shorts. And, um, and so you could get them in all, in all types of patterns. Um, I had many types of patterns. Calhoun's was the place that it was called. And my shorts was the British Columbia flag. Yeah, I was wearing the British Columbia flag on my, on, as my shorts. 90s was wild, it was wild. And then I had a matching Calhoun's t-shirt, white t-shirt with the British Columbia um, flag right here. Some of you might know this about me, that my goal in life, to be as an old woman, I really want to be one of those old women who's super matchy-matchy and wears one color. That's a goal of my life. I've been doing this matchy-matchy business since I was a kid with British Columbia shorts and t-shirts. Anyways, those pieces of information have literally nothing to do with the story, but I figured I would tell them. So, so it's, it's 1992, grade seven, Mrs. Varney at the beginning of class, and Mrs. Varney was an awesome teacher. Again, this is not pertinent to the story, but just helpful information for you to get an idea. You know how some teachers will use um, some sort of like incentive program, you know? You know, like, mon no, who's, what teachers use money? <laughs> I went to the wrong school. I went to the wrong school. My teacher used Jolly Ranchers. That was her incentive program, and I was for it. They're my, one of my favorite candies. Anyways, Mrs. Varney, 1992. I'm in British Columbia shorts, eating a Jolly Rancher. And she tells the entire class that we have to do a book report. And when she says that we have to do a book report, book report, we are supposed to go into the library of Scott Lee Library and find a book, a book that has like some adventure in it. And, and I think to myself, I hate this assignment because I wasn't a reader as a kid. I hated reading. I hated it. All capital letters, hate. Hated reading. My reading comprehension was horrible horrible. And so I hated this idea that I had to do a book report. So I go to the library and I'm looking for a book that I could read that was, I'm looking for the thinnest book that I can find. Who knows this strategy? Okay, great. Great. So I'm looking for the thinnest book that I can find. And then when I find a thin book, I'm looking for the largest print, right? Because I want to do the least amount of work that I can possibly do for this assignment. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm at the turnstile. You know what I mean by a turnstile? No, let me explain. You know when you're at a store and you're looking for sunglasses and it's on that rotating thing that spins? 
turnstile. So sort of like that, but instead of sunglasses, books. And so I'm looking over this turnstile and the books, and uh, Kaylin, you've seen these turnstile things in libraries. Yes, confirmed. Um, so I'm looking, and I see this book. It's thin. I think this is a great, this is great. I pull it out, and I look at the words. They are large print, and it's looking very good. Now, the thing that really tipped me over to read this book, to do this book for my book report, is that it was a book called Dennis the Menace. Yes. Yes. So you're aware of Dennis the Menace. Wonderful. Now, for those of you who might not know who Dennis the Menace is, it's a cartoon character that you would have, you would see like, you know, on the, sh on, the, on the TV, on like a Saturday morning cartoon. And I thought, this is great. Only it wasn't that Dennis the Menace. It was the 1992 movie version of Dennis the Menace. Who has seen this Dennis the Menace? It is one of my favorite, to this day, movies. Also, do you see that old man, Mr. Wilson? That actor is Walter Matthau. I don't know what it is about Walter Matthau. He's, I love him. I don't know why. I love him so much. And when I was about, you know, like a little bit older than 1992, I found out one day that Walter Matthau died. And I cried about that. And I'm not sure why. Again, this is not pertinent information for the story. We're just going with it, though. So this, this is the front of the book, Dennis the Menace, the movie. It is the book adaptation to the movie. And I thought, I have seen this movie already. I love this movie. I am a watch a movie over and over and over kind of person. Is there anybody here that's like that? Great. So I already know this story front and back. I already know about the fart scene with the beans. I already know that scene. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't know. It's great. So I, I already know this, so I figure this is perfect. I can read this book by watching the movie again. Oh, twist my rubber arm. I got to watch a movie that I like. And then all that I need to do is as I write my, as I write my book report, I just have to like find the page in which the story, the scene is in. And then I only have to reference that page. I don't even have to read the book. I can read the movie. Has anybody ever done a similar type thing before? Yeah, I know. I read some of your book reports. I know. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But not really. Um, so, <laughs> so I, I, I really am just kidding. Um, so I read Dennis the Menace. And the assignment was to find an adventure, get lost in the mystery of the adventure of the book. And while I loved this movie with Walter Matthau, I didn't, I didn't get the mystery. I didn't get the adventure because I'd already seen it. I'd already done it. And I took the easy way out. I took the easy way. I, I missed out on the mystery of it all. I didn't put the work in. Because mystery sometimes feels like having to actually do the work in something that doesn't feel or that I don't know what's going to happen feels like work. We don't really want that, right? Sometimes we don't want the mystery of life. But mystery is a part of life. It's a part of life for sure. So in scripture, it talks about, in Isaiah 55, 9, it says that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The things of God are a mystery. God's an adventure. 
In Proverbs 25, too, it says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is uh, to search out a matter is the glory for kings. We read through scripture that there are things beyond our understanding. There is secrets. There are secrets to be revealed. In, in Deuteronomy 29, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But then it continues to say that those things which are revealed belong to us. They belong to our children forever. And that we may do all that the words of the, that we may do all the words of God. To live a life with, with God, to live a life with Jesus, is to live a life of mystery. Mystery is a part of this deal. And in fact, Christ is the mystery. Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27 says that the mystery that has been, hid, that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but is now disclosed to Lord's people, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is the revelation of God in humanity or to humanity. He himself is a mystery. And the fact that we are saved is also the mystery this shouldn't be, but he makes a way. We are saved, and it is a mystery. And when Jesus is ministering and teaching the people of, uh, that he was around in his divine nature, he both brought clarity to mystery and mystery to clarity. He did both because his ways are higher than our ways. One of the ways that Jesus brought mystery to clarity and clarity to mystery was through parables and through stories. For the next six weeks, we're going to be doing a series on parables. All parables. All weeks. I felt like that was sort of like a commercial sound, but it really didn't land. Anyways, we're going to be taking a look at parables for six weeks. And our series is called The Kingdom is like taking a look at the mystery that is the kingdom of God. Because it is a bit mysterious. It is a bit of an adventure. Now, God has created us to love mystery when we're protected and comfortable. We love to sit in our comfy couches and watch a movie that has mystery to it, right? Because we're outside of it. We love it. We love some drama. Not like bad drama, like getting into people's lives, but we love drama. We love it, right? We love a good story. I love an underdog story. Oh, goodness. I love a movie that has something to do with some sort of sports team that is down and out, and they're rising to the occasion. Like, I love the mystery. Are they going to make it? Are they not? Like, what's going to happen? I remember one time I was, I love movies. One time I was at, I was watching, oh, I was watching Batman. Yeah, and I remember, I'm sitting there in the theater, and he's in, this is pretty much the whole movie, but however, he's in the Batmobile, and he's driving right towards Gotham City, and like, things are looking grim, and I, I literally thought while I'm watching the movie, how is Batman going to do it? Like, I was... I didn't know. I couldn't figure out. What's the plan, Batman? How are you going to fix the problem with Gotham? Like, I was just so engulfed in the mystery. We love a story. God has made us to be story people. He uses story to inspire us. He uses story to convict us. He uses story to cut the divide that happens among people. He uses, the, uses story to sort of explode or, or blow up our own concepts of things. And he does this a lot. 
Within the, the New Testament and within the Gospels, we see parables about 39 times. He really likes a, a story. We see them in different types of links. We see one that is about an old garment, and that's one verse. And then we've got the, the prodigal son and the, that parable, which is about 20, 21 verses. So they, they are, they're diverse. There's some, they're mostly in um, the synoptic Gospels, but some are just in one. But Jesus knows the power of story. He knows that story can hold mystery and intrigue us and invites us in. It's this wonderful communication technique that he uses. In this particular technique, that of a parable, it means to come alongside. So there are these stories that Jesus uses that... As, as people are together, as he's teaching, he uses this, this story to come alongside with, um, with the concept. Now, it's important to note that when Jesus uses these stories to come alongside, the experiences were different for people. Some people, when leaving with these stories, are having to wrestle with the clarity of it. Oh, that's what that means. Oh, oh my. I have to wrestle with the clarity of it. But some are also walking away, wrestling with the mystery of it. What does this even mean? Oh, my goodness. There's this mixture of clarity and mystery to his, to his parables. But one thing is consistent among his parables is that there's this shared experience, right? There's this shared experience. A lot of people, when I talked about Dennis the Menace, were like, yes, because we've, we know Dennis the Menace. It was a shared experience. Well, Jesus did the same thing. He used these shared experiences. They've been to a wedding. They know what it's like to have new clothes. They know what it's like to lose something. They've seen people sow seeds, and they've watched people harvest these are shared experiences. And so Jesus is using these shared experiences to explore the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God. Jesus often says, the kingdom of God is like, whenever he sort of introduces his parables, or he says it near the end, he somehow like notes, this parable, this story that has some sort of shared experience, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And then he tells the story. And the kingdom of God, we might say, well, this is a mystery. What does this actually mean, the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the manifestation of God's promised rule from the Old Testament. When John the Baptist was doing his thing and he saw Jesus, he declared that the kingdom had come near. He proclaimed the rule of God through the Messiah, through Jesus. And it was the, the promise of the Messiah that's found in the Old Testament. And then in Jesus' ministry, it was the unfolding of the kingdom of God. It was both present and unfolding. Jesus was prepare, preparing for the kingdom to come. He talked about that. He, he taught what it meant to live in the kingdom of God. The work on the cross was um, the enabling of the new covenant for the kingdom. And the arrival of the Holy Spirit was the sign that the kingdom had come. So the kingdom that's been talking about is God's rule and reign, as was promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And so through his stories and his parables... He's exploring the mystery that is the kingdom of God. And it is the kingdom of God. God's ways are higher than our ways. It's a kingdom that holds mystery. Now, as Christians living today, we might think that parables are sort of like an object lesson, right? Where... You know, it's like Dennis the Mazinist and doing the book report. And then, and then the person clearly outlines why it's like that. 
Jesus doesn't always do that, really. He doesn't say, it's like this, and really, here you go. Sometimes he does, but he doesn't always. He lets it sit. He lets it be mysterious. He lets the Holy Spirit do the work. But then there's another part here that makes me feel uncomfortable and, and that I'm grappling with. Because Jesus doesn't just use parables to bring clarity to mystery. He uses parables to bring mystery to clarity. One commentator says it like this, that Jesus taught in parables not to explain spiritual truths to the crowd, but to keep spiritual truths from the crowd. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Why would Jesus use these things if he's going to keep the truth from the crowds? Why? It doesn't make sense. Jesus is about teaching and bringing truth. Why on earth would this happen? Well, let's take a look at an example, shall we? To the parable. We're going to go to the parable of the sower. It's found in Luke chapter 8. So in Luke chapter 8, we see the parable of the sower, which I would like to suggest is actually the parable of the soil. So in chapter 8, verse 4, we find our parable. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along a path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rocks. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up, and it choked the plants. Still others, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop of a hundred times more than what was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears, let them hear. Oh, such clarity. Oh, man. It's like looking through a window, it's so clear. Of course we know what this story is about. Well, we know the rest of the story. The original hearers of this don't know. All right, so you've just described how someone throws seeds. All right, good story. It doesn't even really have a climax, really. Like, it's just facts at this point, right? Like, what, what is going on? And so Jesus tells the story without explaining it and calls the audience to hear it. All right, listen and understand. All right. But they don't get it, right? The disciples began and they asked him, what does this, what does this mean? What's the point of your story? So obviously this isn't landing, right? We are still in Mysteryville. And it's as if the disciples would be saying something like, why can't you just outline the lesson <laughs> that you're trying to teach us? Why can't you just clearly t like lay out the steps that I'm supposed to take so that I can live for you and be a good follower? Or why don't you just give me the three-point sermon so that I can be on my way? How often do we do that with God? I do it often. I say to Jesus, why can't you make things clearer? Does that land with anybody? Why can't you just reduce things to the bare bones minimum instead of making things more complicated? Why can't I live a Dennis the Menace book, book report life and all I have to do is just do the bare minimum and not actually experience the mystery of you? What if I just did the bare minimum? Well, Jesus explains it 
And he says in verse 10, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Well, that's super clear too, isn't it? The kingdom is the kingdom of God. The concepts that Jesus is presenting here is now clear for the disciples. Not quite, because they asked the question. But the crowd doesn't know, doesn't understand. And this sounds very strange. Now, this story also comes in the book of Matthew. And so we're going to jump to Matthew 13 to maybe get a fuller picture of what's happening here. So in Matthew chapter 13... In verse 13, it says this. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Same thing as what Luke says. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Okay, we need some more context. We're still in mystery. We still don't fully get it yet. So the context for Isaiah, for the prophet Isaiah, this particular text that Jesus is now referencing is coming out of Isaiah. Um, oh, gosh, I didn't put the number. 61. Sure. Somebody fact check me. 66, I think. Quick and go. Let me know. Call it out. But what he does do, it's, um, so it's the scene, and we know this theme, this scene from Isaiah. It's the scene where he's in the presence of God, right? And, he's, and the seraphim has the coal in his hands, and the seraphim flies over and takes the coal and puts it on his lips, and then says that you have been purified, That your sins, you have no guilt, and all the guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. Then I heard the voice, Isaiah says. Then I heard the voice. Whom shall I send? We know this text, yes? He says, then I heard the voice. Whom shall I send? And so Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Then God says, go tell the people. And this is what Jesus is referencing. The go tell the people. Here's Isaiah's message. This is what Jesus is saying. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears. See with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This is the context. This is the prophecy that Jesus is referencing. And it feels as though, as Jesus is explaining, this is why I do this in parables, see Isaiah We still don't have a whole lot of clarity here. It still seems a bit mysterious to me. Perhaps to you, it's clear as day. But for me, it still seems pretty muddy. But what we get from it is that we know, so those who can hear, do hear. All right? And the message that's heard is a message that is a revelatory gift of God's grace. For those who can't, For those who don't hear, the revelation is concealed, and then they are prevented from understanding. But I'm left with the question, why? Why can't they hear? Why can't they see? And I would like to suggest that perhaps the clarity is back and is found back in the mystery of the story. So Jesus breaks down the parable in Matthew 13. He says, did anybody find out the Isaiah text? Six. Thank you. 
So in Matthew 13, Jesus starts to unpack the parable. So he says, then, or listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one come and snatches away what is sown in their hearts. This is the seed that is sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have not they have no root the last only and lasts only a short time when the trouble when trouble or persecution comes because of the word they are quickly they quickly fall away the seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word making it unfruitful but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred or sixty or thirty times what is sown. So why can't they hear? Why can't they see? Because the evil one has snatched the truth away. Because they're distracted by trouble and persecution because they are choked on worry and the illusion of wealth. This is the mystery of the kingdom of God. The word of God is shared with equal intention, but the word of God is not responded to with equal intention. So what does this mean for us personally? We kind of get now the clarity of the, of the parable, but what does this mean? There is one last piece that we need to understand about this text. Often we approach this text as if it's a one-moment scenario. It's a one-moment response. We talk about this and we use this text usually and I've done it as a mechanism to say, you got to be the right soil. You got to be the good soil. Are you the good soil? What soil are you? Right? Have you heard that sermon? What soil are you? Make the choice. Right? Like, we use this as part of, like, an evangelistic method of, like, what soil are you? And we use that as a moment concept. And somehow or other, we feel as though, in my mind, when we, when we use this, this parable in that sort of context, um, I, somehow I think about, like, as if we're trying to get the seed to, like, oh, no, I'm a rocky soil. We got to get this seed to hop on over to the good soil. And I just see, like, as I picture this, like, what are you going to be here? What kind of soil are you? Like, the seed, like... Like hopping, hopping over to the good soil, like trying to get there, Ugh, right? Like it's this one-time, one-time deal. What kind of soil are you? But perhaps it's not a one-time moment. Because a one-time moment, an understanding this parable as thinking of it as a one-time moment, quick, what soil are you? That's sort of a Dennis the Menace move. It's a Dennis the Menace move. I'll take the easy way. <laughs> um, we'll take the easy way. We won't sit with the mystery. But the mystery and the beauty and the adventure of this parable is that it's not just a one-time moment thing. That in fact, what is commended here, the good soil, the reason why it's a good soil, is that it's patient. It lets the truth sink deep and take root. Because the soil is patient, 
And it's giving a hospitable space for the word of God. Because it's patient, then the fruit is upwards to a hundred times the seed. That's what Jesus wants us to hear, I think. That fruitfulness requires patience. Perhaps that's part of the mystery of the kingdom of God. Has anybody ever done, like, the bean seed, um, like, little crafty thing? Yeah? Jora, can you show the picture? There's my little bean seed. All right, years ago, we, most of you know, I was a kids pastor for years. And so, we were doing a, a midweek thing on creation. And so, of course, as kids ministries do, you plant a bean seed in a clear cup, in some dirt, and you watch, right? And like every kid, has everybody, has anybody, hands, have we done this? Okay, okay. And so the kids take it home. They water it. And this is what I did. You like watch it, right? You watch. And you're looking at nothing for a while. It's just soil. You're waiting. You're waiting and you're waiting. And maybe, maybe in a week, you might see like a little root finding its way towards the edge of the cup, right? And then a couple weeks, you start to see the teeny tiniest little sprout just breaking forth toward the light. This little picture here, thanks to Facebook, reminds me that it was about a couple of weeks that that bean was planted. It takes time for seeds to sprout. It takes time to produce fruit. It's not a one-day event. Neither is the harvest of the heart. It takes time. Spiritual fruit is never a matter of an overnight exercise. It takes some patience. Don't you find that we're in a bit of a hurry? I find we're in a bit of a hurry. We want to hurry up and get to where we want to go. Am I right? We want to hurry up and be the therapist that we feel we're called to be. We want to hurry up and be the CEO. We want to hurry up and be the pastor. We want to hurry up and be the missionary that we're called to be. We want to hurry up and get to where we think what success looks like in our mind. We want to hurry up and get there. If life was a highway and I want to ride it all night long, we would be riding in the left lane right? We're just trying to get there as fast as we can. And don't we do that for our spiritual life too? Right? I just want to hurry up and be a really spiritual person. It takes time, right? It takes devotion to let that seed take root. Often we feel like if we know everything, if we have great clarity and we avoid any mystery, well, then we will feel assured, right? If it's clear, we feel assured. Perhaps you've said something similar, either in prayer to the Lord, right? Something like, I wish I knew what I was supposed to do, then I could be less stressed, right? Yeah. Every grad is like, yes. However, we don't, this is the mystery of God. We don't find assurance in clarity. We actually find assurance in mystery. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. There's assurance in the mystery of God. 
And when we take the time to live in the mystery of God, what it does is it provides us opportunity. Patience provides us opportunity to, to live out Colossians 2 that says that we would be rooted and built up in him. That we would have faith like we were taught. And that we would be overflowing with thankfulness. So the kingdom of God requires patience. The kingdom of God, or the faithfulness, requires attention. So when I was after, after Mrs. Varney's class, in grade 8, I moved to a city named Sarnia. And Sarnia, which sounds like Narnia, but not nearly as cool, um, Sarnia, I lived in this, in this uh, house, and they had the owners, the previous owners, had this massive garden in the back. Massive. All sorts of raspberry bushes. And, um, and so my dad was really gung-ho about the garden. He'd never gardened in my life but he was really gung-ho about the garden. And so he had to like, he, bought, he like rented a rototiller. Does anybody know what a rototiller is? Yes, great. He rented a rototiller and rototilled that thing up. And then we like found all sorts of things in there, like weird bowls and rocks and it's amazing. Uh, and so he like raked it all. He like created the rose and all the things. He had to address all of the raspberry bushes because raspberry bushes go everywhere. So we got everything good. And, um, and then every day, every day he needed to attend to that garden. Not just water it, but he was weeding every single day. Because weeds are tenacious, and so are raspberry bushes. And they were tenacious. And if it wasn't attending to that garden, then it would have been unkept. And it would have, the, the weeds, the thorns, they would have created an environment that was inhospitable for vegetation. For the things that he actually wanted to grow. For our hearts to remain in a place that's fertile and, and hospitable for God to grow in us, uh, the things of God to grow, we have to attend. We got to attend to our garden. Sometimes I like to say, when people are heading to class, cultivate your learning garden, because it's ridiculous to say. But we do need to cultivate our garden, right? This isn't a one-time thing that we would have a good garden, a good, you know, manicured garden. This is a, a thing that we continue to do, that we can respond to God working in our lives, attending to um, our souls. Sometimes we need to pull out the weird bowls that seem to surface that are coming out of our lives. The weird things that we're like, what is this thing about? We got to attend to that, right? Because let's be honest, there's stuff. We got stuff. We got stuff in our lives and we got to attend to that. But here's the thing. Sometimes when we've got stuff when we've got maybe personal issues or fears, we're in this pursuit maybe of comfort as opposed to hospitality to, or like a hospitable heart for what God is doing. And we sometimes make space for the stuff and maybe less space for God to do the work. And we need to attend to the stuff. And the wonderful thing is the Holy Spirit is helping us attend to the stuff. We might need to pull out a rock or two. We might need to address the weird bowl that's in there. But this is what Jesus is addressing. He's saying there are things. There are things that come up, right? Where the truth, the truth that is trying to take root is trying to get snatched away. There are things. There is trouble. He acknowledges there is trouble. There's trouble. He acknowledges there is persecution. There is worries of life. There is. He's acknowledging it. There is the deceit of wealth. But fruitfulness means that we attend to these things instead of letting them um, draw our attention away. 
or to draw our attention to these things. Lastly, within the kingdom, the kingdom is like when we think about the kingdom of God and we think about it in this concept of this, of this garden, we need to remember that fruitfulness requires sowing. It's, this is the beautiful thing about parables and the mystery that's found in parables is that they, some, they often hold multiple meanings or they have layers. And Jesus, while he's using this story to address the conditions of our hearts, he's also providing an example. This is what I'm doing. This is what you should do. See, for the, for the sower in our story, he's just gratuitous with his seeds. It doesn't seem like he cares where it's landing. He's just, it's over here. Well, that's hitting the path, but it's hitting the good soil, and it's going over here where the weeds are. He's gratuitous with the seeds. He's just giving them all, like he's just throwing them out. And it shows us, it reminds us that God is gratuitous. Like he is so giving of his word, so giving of his love. We are recipients of the, like, of the mass amounts of seeds that he's throwing of the word of God. And he's saying to us here, sow the seeds. Be gratuitous. Throw all the seeds. Often, when we think about our calling and sharing the truth about Jesus, sometimes we can think strategy, right? Strategy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to breach these people. It's the kids. If we get them when they're young, if we teach them when they're young, then they won't turn away. The kids, it's the kids. And then some we think, it's the youth. It's the next generation, right? And we think, we think strategy, right? And we zone in and strategy. The strategy here, the mysterious strategy here is everybody. Everybody. Everywhere. Anybody, anywhere. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Everybody. Everybody needs the love of God. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Every single person needs the love of God. And this is what we're seeing in this story. Give it. It doesn't... The strategy is go everywhere with the gospel. Go everywhere. And the beauty of this reminder here, that this is not a one-time moment... Even if the seed looks like it's landing on the path, that path can get turned into the good soil by the work of the Holy Spirit. So we throw the seed, we tell the gospel everywhere, and we let God do the work and transform this, the path, the rocky, the thorny, to the good soil. So then... This is also the reminder of this, that as the people who are sowing the seeds, because this is our call, we are all commissioned to preach the gospel, to make disciples, all of us. It doesn't matter if we are capital P pastor, it doesn't matter. This is all our calling. So then we do have to remember that our success, our success in this is the same success that Isaiah had. Back in chapter 6, it's his faithfulness to his commission. It's not success that we tally. It's, his, it's our faithfulness. And so for us to live, to live out the life in the kingdom is to be fruitful. He's calling us to be fruitful. So let's be patient in letting God work in our lives and not trying to hurry past him. Let's pay attention, attend to our gardens, the things that God has placed in our lives. And then let's sow seeds. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Now, 
I really believe that the Lord has been speaking in really neat ways this, this evening, today. Um, you know, like, I'm grateful for the message that, Mariah, you felt was on your heart. Um, and, I, and I want to provide space to maybe have people respond to that call for, to let God comfort you. I'd also like to provide space to let um, us respond in an unhurried way, right? The challenge is let's not speed past God. Let's be patient. And so tonight, um, I'm going to invite us to maybe not rush away. Maybe not rush away. But let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. The band is going to play, and you can begin whenever. But I'd like for us to even in this moment, take a moment and, uh, and ask the Holy Spirit, what do I need to hear? Because it talked about hearing and seeing in our text. What do I need to hear, God, from this parable? What mystery do I need to hear? What mystery do I need to see? Perhaps it's about rushing, or perhaps it's about being distracted, or perhaps it's about um, knowing our calling and our commission. But in this moment, I'd even ask you, could we offer a posture of reception and ask the Holy Spirit, what would you have me hear? I need to understand? What mystery do I need to understand today? And as the Holy Spirit is saying whatever he is saying to you, I would encourage you to just take a little time. Respond. Whether that's in your spot, whether that's here at the altar, on the sides, off just yet and let the Holy Spirit reveal to you what he wants you to see today what he wants you to understand today <laughs> 